Hello listeners and welcome back to The Backhanders. We bring you all the ins and the outs from this great game of tennis. We cover each tennis slam and we are unafraid to slam tennis and to slam that very tennis. My name is Lightning and with me a man who, after Carolina Wozniacki's retirement, is now officially the highest ranked Danish tennis player. When I say ranked, I mean rank tennis player, Katters. Katters, welcome. Lightning, great to be with you. Yes, I am indeed the Danish number one. I have a t-shirt that states this fact and uh, has proven very successful (laughs) amongst the ladies uh, in uh, various bars and uh, community centres across the nation. (laughs) But Lightning, I just think we we don't want to beat around the bush. We don't want to talk about my uh, quite, as described by others, unbelievable backhand. (laughs) I would rather describe... What's been going on this week? And let's just jump into it. I want to summarize it. Supreme athleticism, killer concentration, extraordinary physicality. All of these words describe what I witnessed from my ball kids this week, Lightning. I am so (laughs) proud. The Aussie ball kids have stuck it to the the globe. Stuck it to the globe should be actually the theme for next year's. Just stick it to the globe. The Australian Open... 2021 because our ball kids were awesome and I tell you who didn't agree with me about that awesomeness and that's one Rafa Nadal who tried to kill one of them and I am spitting proverbial chips my friend the Spanish assassin shanked a ball right into the temple of one of our well-performing ball kids Mm. nearly killed her on the spot i was shocked Mm. and the arrogance of that man to run across see if she's okay i'm using quotation marks here just you know insert sarcasm for all of our listeners and he then says oh it'll be fine i'll just give you a little kiss so what sexual assault is the way of making up for nearly sniping one of our children. Think of the children, Rafa. Oh, he- by the way, since when, I don't know whether this is a cultural thing, but when does a little kiss make things okay? I'm pretty sure when I broke up with my girlfriend in grade 12, the little peck on the cheek didn't make things better. When I cheated on my tax returns in the late 90s, I didn't go to my local government building and give everyone a peck on the cheek to make things okay. When I stabbed a guy in 1998 at the station for his Walkman, nothing I regret. The peck on the cheek. Welcome to the real world, Rafa. There are consequences. What what should the consequences be, Cutters? Well, in the very least, immediate disqualification. Mm -hmm. We don't need that sort of rabble in our tournament, I tell you. And secondly, I think all of his prize money should have gone to this charity that I've set up, which is um, Ball Kids Sticking It to the Globe, <laughs> and I will see that the funds are channeled appropriately. <laughs> and Anita Birchall, I believe, was the ball girl's name, who um, I think has since awoken from her coma, a Rafa-induced coma. And uh, I believe her new name is Anita Helmet. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> 
Yes. <laughs> Apparently they're building small bunkers for the second week of Rafa Nadal <laughs> games for the ball kids to kind of scurry out from. But the helmets would be a good look at us. It's just unbelievable. I just think the nerve of that guy and just to think that, oh, you can get away with it by giving her a kiss, signing her hat, sending her on her way. I mean, if this was the US, by the time he'd walked off the court, the litigation that would have already been filed, the three quarters of, of Mallorca that that man owns would have already been sent over to the name of Anita's family. It's, Forget about it. It's true. I mean, it's the, the ultimate Nadal two-punch strategy, wasn't it? To, to dizzy them with a, a slap to the cheek with a ball and then exploiting their dizziness to, to lay one on her. It's a cheap shot. It's a double-fisted cheap shot. It's a very good call, Caddis. That sort of charm does not work on me, but it again exposes that the tennis public are the easiest crowd in modern history. I tell you what, you don't have to do much to win them over, do you? Oh. And I mean, like, you literally put a ball kid in a coma and within 20 seconds by approaching that said kid and giving them a kiss on their cold, dead forehead, you somehow get a standing ovation from the Rod Laver Arena crowd. I ain't buying it, Rafa. And you could actually hear the applause and the standing ovation as the ambulance sirens took her out of the stadium. I mean, it was, for those that didn't have the opportunity to see it, mm. he absolutely <laughs> rocketed. Yeah. A, he rocketed a forehand like it would have been, well, according to the, the Australian Open technology, 300 kilometers an hour plus <laughs> um, as it <laughs> smashed into her temple. It was not pretty, but she took it like a pro. Yeah. And that's what our Aussie ball kids do. They just get on with the job, no messing around. I mean, the French, let's face it, the French wouldn't have put themselves in that sort of danger because they would have been off to the side having a croissant break uh, <laughs> as stipulated by their lengthy contractual negotiations. Well, Cutters, let's talk about some of the other ball kids and indeed French players in relation to ball kids. For those not across, the controversy that, that preempted the whole beginning of this Open was the other young ball girl who, in qualifying matches... Uh, uh, was a part of a huge storm when was on the outside court doing her job, as you said, Catters, with a plum, only to have the French player uh, Elliot Benchitre, I don't know, Benchitret, if you're Australian, he uh, was, was in change of ends, pulled out his banana, gave it to the ball kid and asked her to peel it. Catters, what did you make of this exchange? Well, I think we just have to be clear here. We're talking about a literal banana. There was no euphemisms that you were <laughs> suggesting there. This is how rumours start. Uh, I'm just, I'm appalled. I think it just shows the social media, Instagram generation that we're living with right now, where young kids don't want to roll up their sleeves and peel a banana. We're not asking for much. You know, he wasn't asking her to fan him or serve him grapes. It was a simple banana peel. And look, modern players, they're not the sharpest knife in the spoon. He was perplexed. He hadn't seen this sort of packaging before. It's it's a simple misunderstanding. Yeah. And to be honest, I'm not sure as a Frenchman he'd ever seen a banana that hadn't been sautéed and served with frogois. So he was exactly. a little bit thrown by this underprepared food. Interestingly, Catters, I think I believe he also uh, asked for his water to come sparkling, 
which I thought was a little bit bit of a stretch. Thankfully, the umpire, John Blom, stepped in and actually said, the girl was not his slave. I thought that was a little little interesting. Look, I don't know. Cultures are different. So I don't know in France whether when you arrive at your match, whether the ball kids from there on in are your property. Maybe that's how they roll in France. If so, good luck to them. Uh, clearly, it's working out well well for them uh, until those little ball kids strike back this year at the French Open with yellow vests and decide to cause a giant riot. <laughs> I had wondered about when I'd seen player statistics and saw, you know, $10.5 million earnings, 7.5 ball children. I'd wondered what that kind of, the statistics around their net worth meant. But of course, now you've you've helped fill in the blanks for me, Cutters. I think it took a while for the umpire after the match to also explain to the French player that the only souvenir he got to take home was the towel he'd been using <laughs> and not the three children that he tried to do away with. <laughs> Oh, well, it's fair to say, Cutters, we got off to a bad start, this Australian Open. It wasn't the sort of story we wanted to preempt the, the Open with. But, of course, since then, it's been smooth sailing. What have you made of week one of the Australian Open? Well, I think it's fair to say that it's when it's the best tournament in the world, we have high expectations. Mm. But it lived up to those high expectations. Mm. The only thing that probably let it down was maybe you could say bad tennis for the first two to three days. Sure, where sure. literally nothing happened. Mm. But that, you know, that's out of the tournament director's hands. Sure. So let's put that in perspective. Yeah. Um, of course, one could argue maybe the lights going out during the Curios match yes. might have been... Yeah. It's not ideal. Within their it's control. But I, yeah. No, it's not ideal. It's not ideal. But um, the balls are yellow. There's ambient light from various people's mobile phones. <laughs> I don't see what the players were complaining about. Of course, you could maybe argue that the fans were a little bit too rumbunctious at times. I mean, you, if you were really stretching the point, you could probably say that. There was, of course, 20 Greek fans booted for disruptive behavior at one point. But... Um, I, I thought it was all in good fun. It's going to happen. And, and the smashing of plates and all that kind of stuff was just, it's just part of the cultural exchange. And it, the noise and disruptive behavior was amazing considering they were using plastic disposable plates, but somehow they still managed to make a raucous. And um, yeah, I mean, if their, their story, I believe, was they were smashing wedding plates, which I think is accurate if you substitute wedding to during important points in the final set and plates as chairs, ball kids and non-Greek speaking spectators. So <laughs> Yeah, no, it's it'll definitely hold up in a court of law. Um, but it was an isolated incident. It's true. If you group all of these incidents together mm. in one cluster mm, mm. of moral ambiguity, <laughs> including others such as the random punch on that was taking place <laughs> Just before Curios took to court. <laughs> it's how Curios warms up with his own locker and rackets. So, you know, just the fans <laughs> extending that to the, the stands and it's the pre-match entertainment that we come to expect at the greatest Grand Slam on earth. So, Other than that, it can't be questioned. It was a, it's was it been an unbelievably uh, smooth start to the, the Australian Open. Absolutely. Aside, aside from, of course, Nick Curios belting down a serve at probably around the 200k mark, only to have the machine clock it at 252 kilometres, a pace of serve that would have snapped the racket out of his opponent's hand. 
so, yeah, there's a little bit of inaccuracy in some of the technology, and I wasn't sure whether that was related to perhaps Curios's serve or perhaps maybe the speed at which he goes from being in a good space to completely melting down. <laughs> maybe the technology's evolving and perhaps maybe clocking his mental health now. I'm not so sure, but perhaps we can write it off as an improved technology rather than a glitch in the system. <laughs> That is absolutely brilliant. A Hawkeye would also maybe mm. serve to start showing which side of the brain <laughs> that our friend Saint Nick is tapping into at any given stage. <laughs> so you can actually challenge his mental health, which <laughs> sounds insensitive, but I, I mean it with the best intentions possible. But just to get that insight into where Saint Nick's head is at would be outstanding exactly unfortunately though curios does not have only three challenges remaining <laughs> there's no doubt about that so beyond all of that fine mm. i mean one other small incident i guess you could say uh is i i must admit i can't remember in recent history and i'm relatively new to the sport mm. a grand slam having its surface changed mid-tournament <laughs> uh, i think that's a new innovation <laughs> that few had seen coming <laughs> Melbourne had a huge dump of rain that was actually sending down some sort of dirt mm. ash fusion and uh, ended up laying a thick crust of clay on the courts uh, <laughs> overnight. So, well, those baseliners from Southern Europe were happy and I did find it odd that Berrettini, Fonini and Rafa had managed to put their differences aside and call for a prayer summit on the Monday evening in central Melbourne. The king of clay got his, his wishes and uh, it very much changed the, the narrative for the following days. Didn't it? It was something to behold. It was apocalyptic, like we'd had smoke coming into the open. And then, of course, we were concerned about the cold. We had days wiped out by rain. We had intense winds. We had heat. And then you said the deluge of the dust storm, it, it was incredible. It really was. It was something like out of the Hunger Games. It kind of felt like maybe the tournament organisers were kind of in charge of the weather and were indeed kind of scripting different conditions to maybe test the players. So I'm really looking forward to the tsunami that I think they've got scripted for the second week of the tournament. I think that'll be really fascinating. But as you said, Catters, as the greatest slam on earth, a slam that's known to many as the, the Grand Slam template, We've been loving this extraordinary week of tennis. And uh, I'd like to hear more about it. I want to dig into the specifics. I want to hear particularly what it is you are most energised and excited about, particularly as we turn our attention to week two. So, Cutters, let's go and come on. I've got nothing in my head. I'm just really excited and I want to hug the whole stadium. <laughs> So, Cutters, in this monster week one of the Australian Open, what grabbed you? Lightning, as I mentioned earlier, the first few days of the tournament were rather pedestrian. I mean, mm. you definitely get the benefits later in a tournament when there has been no upsets, but it made for pretty dull viewing for the first few days. But I feel like the tournament just came to life when we started to see the big names emerge. And the man who I've been a big fan of for a long time, you've been a little bit more on the fence a little bit split like his personality itself, and that's Nick Kyrgios. He's come good, and I think the probation that he's on mm -hmm. at the moment, he's treating everything very seriously. He looks like he's focused, and he's about to play Rafa Nadal, his nemesis, the man who he mocked in previous tournaments. Mm -hmm. He mocked in this tournament. 
He's consistent, our Nick. He consistently hates Rafa Nadal, and that makes for compelling viewing. So I just have to say the thing I'm most excited about, and look, listeners, you might come to this podcast late and the match has already happened, and in that case, we don't need you anyways. If you're not listening to a podcast within the first six hours of it dropping, uh, you're dead to me. Log off now. Cancel that five-star review you gave us, those multiple five-star... That was unnecessary. You only had to give us one five-star review. I cannot say that enough. But just unfollow us from from Twitter. Uh, we are on Twitter. Uh, we have never posted on Twitter, but Lightning... No, this is, just a, this is just a status meeting. Sorry. We'll take this offline later, but we're on Twitter, Lightning. I just had to let oh, you good. know. Good to know. This is going to be a magnificent battle. Mm. It's happening Monday night. I cannot wait. I am so pumped about it. It's rare that we get the niggle. And you and I, we love the niggle. We love the argy-bargy. The only thing that could make me more excited than this upcoming duel is another element. And that is the lack of British performance at this Australian Open has got me aroused beyond measure. I cannot physically demonstrate to you how excited I am by the national implosion of this mob of colonial losers. They're nothing short of losers. I'm not trying to be racist, but when it comes to sport, I will happily lambast you useless bunch of people because they've come down under and they've attempted to hit balls and they not hit no balls. I speak of the English that they gave to my country. We lost Kyle Edmund. We lost Tubby Dan Evans. We lost Heather Watson. We lost Harriet Dart, who, honestly, we talk about man-childs. I mean, we don't talk about woman-childs. We should. She honestly looked like she had literally graduated from kindergarten and walked onto court against the Romanian serial killer, uh, Simona Halep. And Halep had her way with her. Halep actually went to toss the coin with a ball kid because she thought that was Harriet Dart. It was unbelievable. And uh, sorry, for those listeners that don't have the full context of Australian culture, we've been battling against the Brits for centuries we play cricket against them mm. we play cricket against them we we play many sports against them and we dislike them immensely so to see them just underperform mm. is sensational and i can point a direct line between that and the atp cup victory where we stuck it to them in the doubles round where to be fair jamie murray or the unknown murray as he's commonly <laughs> referred to missed a clear volley opportunity to win the tie. And at the time, I thought, look, let's let's not blow this out of proportion. You've only messed up the doubles match and your nation's chances of progressing to the semifinals. Let's not blow it out of perspective. But I can now safely say, Jamie Murray, that missed volley has actually led to a whole generation of British players <laughs> failing at this year's Australian Open. I've heard that it's gotten so bad that the Australian government are not going to allow the players in next year because they will not approve a visa that claims that you want a short-term residency under the role of professional tennis player. We weren't born yesterday, British Sports Council. So I'm just, that has got me extremely inspired. I can tell, Catters. I, I can feel the electric energy through the microphones. And you're right, the success of the Australians, and of course we can throw Ash Barty in there as well, and the failure of the Poms is just been exceptional. And we've had a rivalry with the English since, you know, they colonised us and called us convicts. 
and uh, to be one-upping them is fantastic. I mean, we've just loved a rivalry. We've always sought a rivalry in the men's game, and to see Curios and Nadal finally have one is awesome. I mean, I can't picture the last really good rivalry. For me, it was it was Curios versus himself, you know, and before that it was Curios versus his box, and before that it was Curious versus every umpire, and before that it was Curious versus the technology, and before, you know, I, I can't remember the last legitimate uh, rivalry that's got me so excited, but now it's Curious and Adal, so that's coming up, we really look forward to that. Sorry, I went off on a bit of a tangent there. Oh. I know I've burnt quite a lot of our time, but I think it was well spent in the context. Uh, what are you excited about this tournament? For me, the slams bring out the personalities, and I loved it. I loved Shapovalov, the Shapov dog, as we've heard him on this podcast referred to. <laughs> and he was playing the uh, Hungarian Martin Foxovics, which is perhaps not pronounced like that, but, man, it's fun to say it that way. And for me, his was the first proper tantrum of the tournament. This was off the scale atomic. And when he just crunched his racket and then the, it was given a racket violation for the racket abuse. And then he just went off tap and he said, if I don't break the racket, I can do whatever I want. I'm not breaking any rules. It's my racket. I can do whatever the hell I want with it. What are you talking about? I didn't break it. It's a terrible call. Do your job. And off he goes, the umpire, which was, it was unbelievable. It was a full, full meltdown. He then inserted the racket up said umpire it was uh <laughs> something to behold it was something to behold he's a man of his word if nothing else uh shapov dog <laughs> he follows through unlike his forehands exactly only to then be bundled out in, in round one of the open but but a personality and we love that and of course we've talked about your friend nick and it was a lovely moment him versus simon and Nick was done for a time violation and the great controversy that we've heard all along with his Nadal rivalry, where Nadal is the slowest server on court and Nick is known as one of the quickest and Nick is called for a time violation as he's going to serve and kind of cracks it and in his protest mocks Nadal and does some of his gestures to the amusement of the crowd. And sure enough, a game later, <laughs> Simon cops a time violation and again, in service motion, and a hilarious French man wearing clothes two sizes too small for his body stands there and does his own little <laughs> pinch of the butt Nadal takeoff to the absolute amusement of the fans. <laughs> it was just fantastic. For me, it was fascinating then hearing the press conference and, and Curios was asked about this, this moment of impersonation and asked who did the better impersonation. And he basically said, you know, well, it wasn't me because I wasn't wearing underpants. <laughs> I don't know if you heard it. It was hilarious. That explains the 253 kilometres ball speed he's getting up on court. <laughs> exactly. I mean, we knew Nick Kyrgios was loose. We just didn't know how loose. So, to be honest, it's made me so much more impressed with the degree of difficulty that's attached to the tweeners that he performs. So, I wasn't aware that... You know, when he goes to swat that ball wildly through his legs, what's actually, you know, at risk there? So, you know, kudos, Nick Curios. So for me, Cutters, I've loved the personalities. I've loved some of those big moments. But for me, it was something you referenced, and that is when the Open awoke. Three days of boring tennis that I didn't even bother turning on. I knew it would be the case. And yet on day four, they just 
dropped like flies. In two days, six of the top 10 female tennis players lost in the third round. So too on the men's side. You name it, Serena Williams out to King Wang. Waza, Wozniacki dropped. Coco Goff then took out Asaka. And then Raonic took out Itsy Titsy, the human Suvlaki. It was unbelievable. One after the other. Big name, big seed was gone. And I haven't seen anything like it. For me, it was one of the most exceptional passages of, of Grand Slam tennis that I've watched. For me to see a 15-year-old Coco Goff enter Rod Laver Arena, for the first time, first Australian Open, takes out Venus Williams again, but then is severely tested when she cops Naomi Osaka, the reigning champion, who four months ago was absolutely pantsed by her. She turns the tables and wins 6-3, 6-love. Exceptional. So true to form as the 15-year-old she is, she said, oh my gosh, I'm on Rod Laver Arena. I can't believe this. I walked past him a couple of times in the hallways. I never really said hi because I'm a little bit nervous. If he sees this, tell him, can we meet up sometime? I need a selfie for Instagram. <laughs> Brilliant moments. And then classically, the rocket, Rod Laver, tweet, you know, 75-year-old rocket Rod Laver tweets back, Hello, Coco Goff. Congratulations on your incredible victory tonight. I would love to meet you too. Rocket emoji, which I just loved. <laughs> I mean, for a guy at 75, I think that's a little sexual. Uh, tone it down. <laughs> I can just picture him sitting in his computer going, where's the rocket button? <laughs> exactly. And wasn't it sad, Cutters? Wozniacki, as you said, we predicted a round two loss. So for her to get to the third round, monumental. And for me, it was a fitting way to see her go. To have her lose in the third round to a player we'd never heard of that she certainly should have beaten, Tunisia's Ons Jabber. And she was paid tribute to on court after her loss with a cuddly teddy koala and a montage on the big screen, which was particularly short, didn't take long to go through her one Grand Slam victory, uh, and then was played Sweet Caroline. And it was fantastic to then have the mic given to her and uh, for her to leave the line that I just thought was fantastic, for her to say, I think it was only fitting that my last match would be a three-setter, a grinder, and that I would finish my career with a forehand error. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to give her credit for that wit, but I really think that was an unknowing <laughs> own goal. But good on her for the effort. I thought beefing up the career montage by including Snapchat videos she'd posted to friends uh, over the years was, <laughs> was a little sad and probably reflected a little bit on her career. But there's only so many angles you can shoot that single victory from. <laughs> It did look like a Matrix sequence, actually, with all the... I'm sympathetic to the producer who tried to slow the footage to a thousand frames per second and it just doesn't hold up, um, like most of her strokes technically. So, it, we're sad to see her go. I'll give you the racket and we'll no, see, how many no. times, see how many times you can return your serve also. No, you're a professional tennis player. I'm not. Okay. Cat as the Open always surfaces some up-and-comers that we didn't see coming. Of course, the Federers are in our midst and we're yet to name them. And yet we do here in this podcast in our Fed Up, but also in our Poo Down segment in which we also look at those who are promising but failing to deliver. 
So, Catters, in this fed up, who down segment, let's start. Who is your fed up? Lightning, my fed up continues our Twitter theme for this episode, and that is one Tennis Sangren, mm. a man who made his name notoriously for some rather uh, controversial tweets mm. he put out a few years ago supporting some rather right-leaning uh, organizations. So he's been a controversial figure, Tennis Sengren, but I'm just happy to see him progressing. He is the kind of guy we grew up in Australia seeing on television in America as that quintessential southern redneck hick, you know? <laughs> he's got the cut-off sleeves. He looks like he's just done 100 push-ups before coming on court and drunk a bottle of Jack the fact that he actually asked them to install a rocking chair at the change events <laughs> and a banjo. Uh, he's broken more banjos than tennis rackets this tournament. So just really embodying that spirit of the redneck hick. And I can only assume his real name is Chuck because he is so American, but he's changed his name to tennis. And talk about the American approach to positive thinking. If you can envision it, this is a man who has been born and raised on... Oprah and Dr. Phil, and he knows that if he changed his name to Tennis, that he would eventually become Tennis, and he is embodying Tennis, and I love that about him. And regardless of whether he, you know, it don't matter if you're black or white, we've established that. Michael Jackson established that in the early 90s, Tennis. All the tweets in the world cannot undermine the doctrine of wacko jacko, but the fact that you believe in Tennis doesn't matter about your shade of skin, doesn't matter about your sexual orientation, the beauty of sport is we can place politics to either side. We can go out and we can run around the court like a hillbilly and celebrate by burning a car <laughs> on court. And I think that that's just the wonderful thing about tennis. It's a it's a leveler. I mean, firing off the shotgun before each change of ends, I think, is a little bit provocative as a gesture. But I only hope that he funnels the the winnings from the fourth round victory he just had against Fanini into some sort of dental fund for him and his family. <laughs> and lightning my poo down is someone who I actually had high hopes for this tournament, and that's one Belinda Bencic. She was the sixth seed coming into this mm. tournament, and she got assaulted by a Spaniard worse than Anita Helmet, I tell you. She... <laughs> Garbina Muguruza somehow spent the months of December and January relearning how to play tennis. I didn't think she had it in her. And she's found her 2013-2014 form and she absolutely obliterated the Swiss off the court. Yeah. She won 6-love, six 6-1. Six Belinda Bentic managed one game. At one point, at 6-love, 3-love, I believe the match had only been going for 30 minutes. Oh, <laughs> so wow. Bentic was close to losing just over half an hour. She ended up, to her credit, slaving it out and giving the crowd their money's worth by extending the match to 48 minutes. Wow. I mean, it's been a while, Cutter, since we've seen a, a pants-down lap after the, the six love, six love donuts. And for her to rob the fans of both a good match and the pants down lap of disgrace was uh, a really it's frustrating true. experience for those present. Cutters, uh, for me, my fed up, it's 
none other than a man you may have heard on this podcast, uh, Sasha Zvarev. Wash out your mouth. <laughs> Perhaps it's that I just feel a little bad that he's gone 11 consecutive backhanders episodes as our poo down. But Kat is, he is starting to deliver. We both expected him to just bomb out. He was serving like your grandmother prior to this tournament. He could not land a serve. This guy is, just like our friend Nishikori, famous for getting through the tournament but just giving up uh, unnecessary sets for the sake of it, of turning easy wins into unnecessary five-set grinds and robbing himself of any chance of going deep in a slam, which he has never done. And yet here he is into the fourth round, having not dropped a set to another player which he's only ever done once before. So incredible. And he's serving at 74% first serves in. So if to turn that around after two years of completely underperforming, he's sufficiently lowered our expectations, made us look away, thinking there's nothing to see here. The players he's playing against have forgotten that he can actually play tennis, have been taking him far too easy, and he's got through unscathed and now has the chance to turn his sights on maybe potentially playing against some players who might actually return his serve. So we wait to see what the second... So I need to apologise, Cutters. Zvaru, I'm sorry for all the poo-downs that were perhaps in vain, that were perhaps premature. Basically, I just don't want to miss out on calling it when you actually get your together and actually become the tennis player we thought you could be and of course the other thing cutters i've really appreciated is his generosity we've seen his heart in this tournament every match ten thousand dollars goes to fire relief more than that he has chosen to donate all of the 4.12 million dollar prize check he would win if he was to win the open that's incredible now look cynics may argue that for a star that has actually never even gone past the fourth round at the Australian Open or any of the other majors, Zvarev's perhaps generous offer is perhaps merely generous in thought alone. But let's shelve that aside and just reflect on the generosity of the man. I'd like also to take this opportunity to say that if I win the Nobel Peace Prize, I'd also like to donate all the proceeds <laughs> to fire relief as well. I think it's only fair. Well said, well said. I just want to be on the record for saying I don't apologize for any of your poo downs, Zverev. We worship a vengeful God and it. No regrets. You've played three chumps. I am not jumping on the bandwagon. I refuse to. Uh, my poo down is a sad one, and it is Grigor Dimitrov. Now, a man who I really like. He's lovely, funny guy, well-respected off the court. He's a likeable man. He is a lovely, likeable man and, and carries the nickname Baby Fed for the very reason that he should be in the Fed Up segment of this podcast. Yet he walked onto court with a suit that was border on illegal. <laughs> he should not have been allowed out in public wearing what he wore. For those who haven't seen it, it probably has broken the internet by merely being on there, a purple 80s style tracksuit that was just incredible to look at. So much of the criticism has suggested it's looked like a set of pyjamas. I also heard it described as migraine inducing. <laughs> I don't know, maybe he's angling at joining Dominic Team's 80s boy band. It would have seemed <laughs> very appropriate in that context. Yes. Cat is... 
What was your take? What the hell was he wearing? Yeah, I mean, I just think it's fine that if you want to wear something like that, but if you don't have the breakdance moves to back it up, <laughs> then call me old school. But you're dead to me. I mean, really, he had all the gear, no idea. There's very few players that can rock the I've just swaggered in from a bachelor weekend paintball match fared rather poorly based on the amount of spots I identified on his back and then walk onto a tennis court. But he's kind of a buttoned up pretty, you know, straight kind of guy. And so it just doesn't suit him. When Federer walks into Wimbledon with his flipping pimp blazer on, Mm. no one really questions it. When Rafa rocks up with his neon colors looking like a Power Ranger, yeah, it works. And I'm not even going to touch the Serena bin. (laughs) That's the flaming bin of fashion faux pas. But Grigor, it just didn't work for him. But I don't know what the hell was going on, Catters, because it was self-designed. He had no one else to blame. He worked with Nike to put this whole shindig together. For me, it looked kind of like, I don't know, it looked like a cocoon or a chrysalis or something that... (laughs) And as he came on a court, he was going to do some kind of interpretive dance. Yeah. Performance art giving birth to himself, which, <laughs> let's be fair, hasn't yet been done. So, <laughs> exactly. he's breaking new ground. Exactly. Um, I would argue that I didn't see a, a Nike swoosh on any part of that garment. So, mm. whilst he might have been partnering with Nike <laughs> in the early stages of development... Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure that both parties signed off on the said garment. Yes. I mean, knowing his nickname was Baby Fed, I'd always imagined that the closest he'd get to winning a slam would be strapped to Roger Federer's chest (laughs) in one of those harnesses from Hangover. (laughs) wonder if it is possible to play men's doubles with having one of the players strapped to the other one's chest. (laughs) Now, listen, Jamie Murray, uh, we've got good news and bad news. The good news is we are selecting you for our Olympic team. The bad news is that you will be strapped to Joe Salisbury's chest throughout the tournament and we will not be hearing any dissenting views. You will be gagged by this dummy and breastfed by Tim Henman at the change events. Oh, dear. I have no doubt, though, Catters, that if Argentina could find a normal-sized human to play tennis, that they would put Diego Schwartzman in (laughs) a baby carrier and could pull that off. Diego Schwartzman's nickname is Mini Mini Fed. (laughs) In fact, that's the merchandising. It's a babushka doll where you you open up Federer to find Grigor in pyjamas coming down the stairs, and then you open up... To find Mini Man Schwartzman. Code violation. Verbal abuse. Code violation. Verbal abuse. You owe me an apology. I have never cheated in my life. You're a thief too. You're a thief too. Catter's Mixed Troubles, a segment we cordon off uh, to appreciate that tennis, with all its complexities, means there's fighting, there's challenges, there's struggles, both on and off the court. What are we hearing in the dramatic world of tennis? 
Lightning, the name Thomas Muster might not mean much to newer fans of tennis, mm-hmm. but he was obviously a big name back in the 90s. I think he reached number three in the world. Austrian tennis player known for just an insane fitness regime, mm-hmm. which caught the eye of one Joe Beth Taylor, former Hey Hey It's Saturday host. <laughs> right. A lot who he married and subsequently separated from a couple of years later. But they have a couple of kids together. There's a bit of trivia for you. But that's not the mixed troubles I want to talk about. I believe, is that how he got himself a dicky knee? Is that? (laughs) (laughs) He would be the man that if you were a young Austrian player, you were looking up to. Absolutely. He was known as the king of clay cutters in his time. Who was he? Yeah. That does feel premature (laughs) in hindsight. It does. He did, after all, take out... One French Open, so it did feel as though the reign was short-lived when Rafa Nadal then comes and just takes the casual dozen. Well, Thomas Muster, former King of Clay, was employed by the Austrian protege, Dominic Thiem, ah, as yes. his coach. Mm. This was announced just prior to the Australian Open that they were joining forces, and at the conclusion of his third-round match... Dominic team mentioned that there was a suspiciously absent member of his coaching team in the box, and that's because Thomas Muster had been fired within a week. Mm. So I would say that that qualifies for mixed troubles. Oh, absolutely. I also think it's odd because Dominic team does seem like the most easygoing person in the universe. So... I don't know what Tommy Muster has done to manage to ruffle this man's peroxided feathers, but something has gone awry and they've parted company mid-tournament. Now, this is just unheard of. Like, wouldn't you just try and keep some sort of normality throughout the tournament? I mean, absolutely. bury the hatchet and allow it at least to go through two weeks before you kick this guy off your team? It's very odd. He, he's got to be detrimental, as you said, to lose his expertise during a tournament, which he'd only just been employed for. So, you know, did he leave him because just like team's head, Thomas Muster was full of outdated and unhelpful tips. <laughs> I don't know. I... I mean, Muster obviously doesn't exactly fit the bill for the boy band <laughs> ensemble that Dominic Team is going for. You know, all boy bands have the pretty boy, they have the the bad boy, they have the dark and mysterious boy, and then they have the 65-year-old ripped military-style dictator. Uh, just breaking a little bit with tradition there. What What possibly? Uh, there's more to be found in this mixed troubles event because there is Absolutely. there is definitely something below the surface that will, will come out here. And we'll do the investigating as the backhanders to discover that because I was amazed as you were, Cutters, to then just see Dominic team rock up and just say, you know, Thomas... Quit playing games with my heart, you know, you're out of the group. There's been a very kind of philosophical battle within their camp, apparently, where Thomas Muster just said that calling themselves Team Team just doesn't make sense. And Dominic <laughs> is adamant that that's a good title. And and so fundamentally, there was a huge clash about that. They won't understand the play on words. I don't understand the play on words. So I would just encourage all of our, our listeners around the world, but particularly those from our heritage in the Southern Hemisphere, to celebrate 
Austria Day tomorrow and think of <laughs> Thomas Muster as you do. <laughs> Love it. I didn't understand a word you're saying, but it was, it's not important. Cutters, we are at the midway point of the Australian Open, the perfect time to pause and check in on our predictions pre-tournament. Cutters, how did you go with your predictions? Yeah, they're not looking great. Mixed bag, I would say. I thought Serena was looking bulletproof going in, but she has shanked it. And yeah. suddenly 24 feels almost out of reach, but we can have that conversation another time. Yeah. My other one is the Joker, and he is having his sweet way with his side of the draw. So I don't think mm. there are many speed bumps on the way to him at least making a semi or the final. In terms of Dark Horse, I don't think I bet on a Dark Horse for the men's, but I did pump up the man-child Rublev a lot in the last episode. Mm. And uh, having said that, listeners have gotten in touch saying that they too are Rublev fans. He won two big tournaments, well, big tournaments, uh, two tiny tournaments, but big trophies, <laughs> if you include a Golden Eagle <laughs> twice his size, pre-Australian Open, and he's carried that form through. So that's exciting to see. He's made his way into the fourth round. And my dark horse for the lady side is Kvitova, and I think she mm. looks fantastic. It looks mm. very, very good at the moment. Feels very open on the women's side, as we've discussed with a lot of the big names conking out. So anything could happen, and I think she's a chance. How about you, Lightning? Yeah, I'm somewhat of a mixed bag. Similarly, I had Pliskova. Now, Pliskova was women's second seed this year. Now, she's never won a slam before, and basically she only shows up in tournaments outside Grand Slams. I had predicted that she'd just pull something out of the bag and yet played Kavalchenkova, who had never beaten her in six previous meetings, and put her on the canvas because it's a Grand Slam. And Pliskova just doesn't seem to care or turn up when it happens to be a Grand Slam. So she's out. She's gone. So, yep, yeah, not looking good on the women's side. For me, my heart was Federer, who's playing. He's one set all at the moment as we record. Federer was was taken to five by Milman in, in a classic match. And I think that's taken too much out of him. So I doubt my heart pick will be there. But Medvedev was my legitimate prediction. And... He has looked solid without being tested yet. So similar to Djokovic, he's gone through unscathed. And if he can do that and get to a semi, I'm not looking too bad. So the sneaky Russian might yet pull one out of the bag. My dark horse. So so wait a second. You have a head and a heart prediction mm, yeah. for the men. My left shoulder prediction is... <laughs> uh, <laughs> So, yes, I, I snuck in a Fed just to say I'd like it to happen. But my prediction is Medvedev. And for me, Curios was my dark horse. And here I am defying even my own doubts to see him playing Rafa Nadal. Can he pull it off? After two consecutive massive matches, it's hard to see. But, man, I'm hanging in there for just him to go deep and just ruffle some feathers. I mean, he's a showman. We love watching him even if he is bloody hard to watch. So, Cutters, there are our predictions. We're both in the hunt to land perhaps one or two points of accuracy. But, Cutters, are there any wider predictions for what we're likely to see in this final week of the Australian Open? Oh, what, you didn't have any medium to dark shade horse predictions up your sleeve? Or... <laughs> I had some other farm animal predictions that I'd like to now go through. <laughs> Um, oh, predictions, predictions. I, I'm still reeling from the revelation that Nick Kyrgios is not wearing jocks on court. 
<laughs> I already think that his shorts look ridiculous with this multicolored. It almost looks like Dutch still life art from the 1600s where you're looking at a fruit bowl. And that's not helping it to know <laughs> that there's a banana and some plums mixed into that... Uh, that imagery there. So, my prediction would be if he attempts another tweener, he won't need to ask a ball kid to peel his banana. He'll be doing it for himself. <laughs> oh, a bold prediction about Curios's fruit bowl. So, we await to see. My prediction is very purely and simply that with so many seeds falling in this first week, if the seeds continue to fall, will it pretty much become a grass tournament in week two of the Australian Open? So that's uh, that's what I'm predicting. By tournament end... Another surface change. It's going to be the third surface change. It's an innovative tournament, if nothing else. Yep. <laughs> so it's going to be a bumper week two of the tournament, Catters. So... Look out, listeners. Please be in touch through our socials. Get on in touch with us through our Instagram at the Backhanders, through Facebook, and please review and share. It'll help get the word out there about the Backhanders. So for all you tennis fans out there, cheer loudly, cheer rowdily, but particularly for those Greek fans out there, quiet please. <laughs>